Good morning, church. Good morning, everyone. It is great to see you and be with you this morning. And uh, we are now in week three of Missions Month. And I just want to, I just want to quickly remind all of us that missions is not a month. Can I get an amen? Um, one of the pitfalls, potential pitfalls of having a term like Missions Month is that we can, we can think of missions as something that we do for a month out of the year, something that we relegate to a month, let's get it over with, so that we can move on to more important and relevant things. But that is so not the case. Missions is what we as a church are to be about this is our business. This is to be a way of life. And we engage in missions because God is. We care about missions because God does. And contrary to what a lot of people today think, the church is not sent on a mission by God. No, God himself is on a mission. Our God, we know, is a missionary God. And he has called us as his people to join him and extending his kingdom here on earth by taking the gospel where the gospel is not yet known. And Missions Month for us is an annual reminder of that. That's what this is for, to be reminded of our calling, our purpose, our privilege, that we get to join God, that we get to join our king in his mission of reaching the nations for his glory and their good. And our theme this year is re-engage. Missions, for the most part, has been put on hold during the pandemic, but now it's time to re-engage. It's time to get back in the game, and we are so excited to be able to do that. And this morning, I have the joy of introducing our speaker, who's going to be issuing that call from God's Word. Pastor Peter Kim has served as a senior pastor and elder of Berean Community Church, in Irvine since 1997. He studied at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology. He has been married to his wife, Esther, since 1992. And they have four children, Jeremy, 26, Zachary, 23, Faith, 21, and Isaiah, 15. Now, this is not the first time Pastor Peter has been with us. Um, he actually spoke at our fall retreat a few years back, and that was such a wonderful time. That was an impactful time for us as a church, and I still remember some of the things that you preached. And I remember what you shared about your brother, and that's been, that stayed with me. And just how far he was from the Lord, and how much you prayed, how much you labored in prayer, and how much you bore witness and I think it was for years, right? More than like a decade. And finally, he, the day came when he surrendered his life to Christ. And Peter, I believe you baptized him. But I, I, I think of that from time to time. And just, again, just, man, just the power of God in our witness and in our prayer. But I love Pastor Peter's preaching, the way he exposits and teaches the word of God. And I had the joy of preaching at his church a few years back as well. And that was a wonderful time for me and my family. And Berean is such a, it's an amazing church. In fact, uh, when any of our people move down to the OC um, and they ask about churches down there, there's one main church that Pastor Ray and I, we recommend, and that's Berean. Um, because you know what you're going to get. You know what you're going to, what you're going to get is God. You're going to get his word. You're going to get solid biblical preaching, and you're going to get solid godly leadership from the elders in that community, all of whom are led by Pastor Peter. Peter, we are delighted that you're here, and we look forward to hearing God and his word through you. So living way, let's put our hands together for Pastor Peter. Thank you. Uh, the love is mutual. You know, I, uh, I think, I, I can't see you through here, but I know that there's some former Bereans at this church, and this is a church that we recommend if they come down to L.A., uh, except this is a much a cooler church. You know, our, ch our church elders and leaders are all nerdy, you know, and so uh, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, when the, the lady asked us to share about what 
books we read when we were childhood. And when I look at Pastor James, I just can't get Malcolm X out of my head. It's like the Korean Malcolm X. You know, he's the cool, cool pastor. Um, and Pastor Ray has been at our church so many times. And uh, he's been a huge blessing. Both of them have been a huge blessing. I remember last, last time Pastor James came to our church and spoke, one of our key ladies came up to me and said, I've never heard a sermon like that before. Right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. But again, I'm very thankful to, uh, to be here with you, to be able to share the Word of God. Um, at our church, coincidentally, you know, this is our evangelism month. So after our second service, we have a meeting with our church people, and we go over the gospel and, and various different illustrations of how to share the gospel, and we actually hit the streets and then try to find out. So one of our main purpose of doing that is to, to find out what people are thinking who don't go to church. People who say they're Christians, like how much they really understand about the gospel. And it is, you know, it's never, uh, again, at least for me, uh, it's no longer shocking when we go out on the streets, and especially in Orange County, we have a mega church, probably about five, ten minute driving distance into any direction. And so it's probably one of the most churched areas in California. And yet, every time we go out, people come back surprised how few people actually know the gospel. Even the people who are, who've been, say, I grew up in church, you know, I, I'm third generation Christian. And when we begin to actually get into the gospel, they don't know what it says. And so that's the spiritual climate that we're in. So there's a tendency for us to think that missions is somewhere out there and we're kind of in, you know, an area where the gospel has spread, but that is not the case. And I'm sure you're aware of it, right? We, we are in the mission field. And in order for us to be effective overseas, we have to first be effective here. We can't turn that on and off. We can't go out way over there pay all kinds of money and then tell them how wonderful the gospel is and how we really want them to come to Christ and then when we come back home and that's not the way we live. So the best way to prepare for missions is to be a missionary here today. You know, there's a tendency for us to think that I can do missions if I'm there. I can do missions if, if I'm in this environment or if I go there. But the best way to prepare for that is to be the best person, best Christian that God called you to be today. So the text that I want to look at with you this morning is in Colossians 4, 2 to 4. And I want to, again, share with you the heart of God through this text. Colossians 4, 2 to 4 is that devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us the door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make clear in the way I ought to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your continued blessing and love that you pour upon us. Things that we are aware of. Many things, Lord God, that we are not aware of. We pray that this morning that your word would go forth. That it would not return until it has accomplished the purpose you have ordained it. May your name be magnified. May your children, Lord God, become better worshipers as a result. We love you, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you guys are emphasizing missions, and I'm sure you're aware of what has happened during the pandemic, um, we've been in and out of China for many, many years. And in the last two years, China basically has been shut down for outside missionaries. Um, our denomination, Southern Baptist, uh, the, the mission organization is called IMB, International Mission Board. Um, last time I talked to them, I asked them, do you have anybody left in China? And they said, nobody. Uh, we were probably one of the largest denomination, largest mission groups, sending groups in China. And they said they don't have a single person. Frontiers completely kicked out. Uh, navigators, completely kicked out. CCC, completely kicked out. Every mission organization from the outside has been completely locked out of China. Um, they can't get back in. In fact, the last time I was there, about four years ago, before the pandemic, usually I would just present my passport, and then they would just ask me a few questions, and then I would be able to come in. But last time I went in, they did a full scan. 
of my face, my fingers, and, and the whole thing, and then they have it on record now, so now the, now the computer system is advanced, and the missionaries tell me that if I come in and they tr decide to flag me, they can actually pull up the video of who picked me up. And now with the pandemic, they have the, the stuff on the app, and uh, everybody can be traced wherever they go, and they have cameras everywhere. And so out of concern for their safety, not for the safety of the missionaries, but for the locals, they said they're not going in. And then so the second strategy was, how do we get in there with video? So they started using the internet, and that was their strategy while during the pandemic to be able to send out videos and, and mission work and to be able to train the pastors through the internet. And once the government found out about that, they shut down the internet. Where they can, anybody who does any kind of evangelism or Bible training from the outside gets flagged and you can't come in. And if you do come in next time, you're going to get flagged and get arrested. This is not unique to China. The, the persecution around the world is ramping up rapidly. Uh, when we first started to go out to India, uh, India was on the persecution meter about 33 or 34 on the list. Within the last 10 years, they have moved up into top 10. And we, we've seen it. In fact, just this January, we went out to India. And this, for the first time, the local pastors were afraid. And these are people who've been beaten, had rocks thrown. They were um, almost beaten, left for dead in the forest. And so these, these guys are used to persecution. And uh, this is the first time we, we went in, and they were nervous. And they were trying to take us place, to places where they felt they were safe, or we were safe. And obviously, because they were nervous, we got nervous, you know. And so we're just kind of watching and praying to see, is this, is this ministry um, something that we can continue to do? We have, we're taking doctors in. We're running a medical camp in, in a deep part of India. And, uh, and as a result of that, um, we have to continue to change our strategy. Now, in the midst of all of this, we can say, Man, the doors are closing. It's becoming more difficult to be a Christian, even here in the United States. Um, how are we going to be missional in the next stage of our country, of this world? But this is nothing new to the Christian world. The gospel has always spread in the midst of intense persecution. The government may shut down. The hatred toward Christianity may be increasing. But our God is the same God. If this was going to be squashed by men, it would have been squashed in the first century. If the gospel was going to be hindered by men, it would have been hindered enough where we wouldn't be here. It was 2,000 years of God keeping his promise, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And we are a living witness of God's faithfulness to his promise. So even as we see the persecution meter going crazy in fact if you look carefully you will see revival breaking out everywhere in the midst of persecution what i want to emphasize today about being missional is the importance of prayer in missions because jesus said mission work's not going to happen because you found faithful men mission work is not going to happen because you tapped into a strategy that other people do not know he said, you're going to bear fruit if you what? If you abide in me. If you abide in me. If my word abide in you, right? And if you abide in me, ask whatever you wish. It shall be done for you. So he said, I will do it. The only thing I ask of you is to abide in me. We have to admit, in the Western church, prayer is not of emphasis. I'm very thankful that your church and your pastors emphasize prayer. The last time I was at your retreat and the prayer meeting that we had together, um, I still remember it to this day. You know, you should be very thankful that there's an emphasis on prayer in your church. But this is not typical of the Western church. There's two things that James says why the church is frustrated. James chapter 4, 2 B3, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. So the Western church, I would say, which we are all part of, is guilty of lack of prayer. 
And if you know that text, it says the reason why you have all kinds of turmoil in the church and divisions in the church and discontent and anxiety is because you're not praying. First and foremost, when you see your church or when you see your community, when you see your lives and families begin to unravel, the very first thing that we ought to look at is, am I praying? Am I praying? Do I have the right community? Do I need to change this? Do I, does this need to change? But first and foremost, am I praying? Because that's what James says. All this turmoil is happening because you do not pray. And then, secondly, he says, but when you do pray, you're frustrated because you're not getting answered prayer because you're praying for the wrong things for your own motive so what i notice as an asian american a korean american in particular the western church lacks prayer korean churches have a reputation of being prayer warriors but the problem with the korean church is because of lack of teaching and theology oftentimes their prayers don't sound any different than the buddhist they're, they're praying that God would bless them and their children go to the right schools and if they're sick to be healthy. So they are praying, but they're praying for wrong things. So we need to know the heart of God. If we're going to tap it, if he said fruitfulness and missions is going to be effective when we abide in him, right, then we need to know what does it mean to abide in him? How do we pray in such a way where we tap into his promise. The Western world knows well the mind of God because the emphasis is on teaching and theology and organizations and conferences. But before you know the mind of God, you must know the heart of God. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. Remember in the Gospel of Luke 15, it says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him and Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is followed up by uh, eats with them. And so in response to their rebuke, why is Jesus hanging around with the tax collectors? Because doesn't, isn't he going to become unclean? So in response to that, in rebuke to that rebuke, Jesus gives three parables. And, and all three parables are really meant to be understood as one. Because there's one main point. Those are not three separate parables that he's giving three separate lessons. There's actually the same point, but he gives it three times for the purpose of emphasis so that by the time we get to the third parable of the prodigal son, it's kind of like a crescendo. The first parable is the lost sheep. That if there's a hundred sheep and one goes astray, he goes and picks it up, comes back, and it ends in celebration. That God rejoices over finding this lost sheep and then the second is the 10 silver coins and the lady goes and sweeps the whole house and finds the coin and she celebrates and he says god rejoices over finding of this coin and then the third parable is about the son how he leaves his father wastes all of his possessions and then he comes back humbled in repentance and the father instead of rebuking him brings him back him covers him with his son's robe and sandals and brings him back and restores it completely and then he ends it by turning around rebuking the older brother you think you know the mind of god but you do not know the heart of god this is the heart of god jesus himself said the son of man came to seek and save the lost exactly like pastor james said our god is a missional god this is not something that we do as a church because we're going to be about missions. That church is going to be about theology. That church is going to be about counseling. It's like, no, we do what he does. If we're followers of Christ, you can't call yourself a follower of Christ if you're not following Christ. So if you follow Christ, he's going to take you to the mission field because he says, I have come to seek and save the lost. So we need to be devoted to prayer and to be tapping into his heart. So the text that we're looking at this morning, it says in Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer. Not just sprinkle prayer. Right? Not just pray because of meals. Not just pray because it's the beginning of the service or pray because I'm, I'm about to do something. Not sprinkling prayer. Devoted to pray for the purpose of prayer. Make prayer the priority, just like the apostles. Right? But they, they couldn't get distracted with with. Various things because they have to be devoted to word and prayer. 
But what I want to focus on in this text is what they were praying for, what, what Paul was asking for prayer, because this is a consistent theme that we see with all of Paul's prayer. He says, pray that God will open doors for the word of God. Pray, first and foremost. Right? Now, I guarantee you, right, if this is the heart of God, and the Bible makes that very clear. If you tap into this aspect of God, right, you have tapped into something that God is already waiting to give you. You know, when my, I have a, a younger one, 15-year-old, who's not independent yet. The other three are, in the, they got their own cars, and, you know, I don't know where they are sometimes. So I asked them, because they're, they're already about, one of them, one's living out of the house, two's living inside the house, but they're hardly ever home. And so my youngest one is kind of, you know, he grew up with his older siblings and, and loves having his siblings around, but they're never home. Right? So, so I, I'm always begging them. It's like, hey, come take care of your brother. Right? He's lonely, right? Take him out. He can't go out by himself. Every once in a while, one of the siblings would come and ask me, hey, can I have some money? Like, For what? And they know what to say. I'm going to take Isaiah out. Right? I don't even ask him for how much, because I'm already thinking what I want him to do. I'm already thinking, like, this is what I wanted you to do. So you don't even have to ask me. They might, they're, oh, make $20, $40, I give you 100 bucks. Take him to K1, you know, like things that, that he's, he can't do by himself. And I'm just like, go out for a nice meal and then take him out to, you know, to, to watch a movie. You don't need to beg for that, because I'm waiting for you to ask me. Paul's prayer was effective because he knew this was God's heart, to pray that the doors may be opened. Today, in the Western world, when we think about open doors, you know, we often think, because of the way we grew up, and we're all guilty of this, if God doesn't provide funding, the door's not open. If there's persecution, the door's not open. The opportunity's not there. The pandemic, door's not open. Right? But I want you to understand from Paul's perspective how he saw open door. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You notice that? He says, many are wanting, are wanting to beat me and put me in jail. Right? But he didn't say, so the door's not open. No. The door's been wide open, but there's also many people who are in opposition. You know what's interesting was, I asked one of the Indian pastors, and I said, what's the, what do you do when you go in and, and they persecute you, right? Because sometimes they go into a village, and we're in the remote part of India, not in the big cities. And he said, sometimes when they don't want to hear it, they'll just throw rocks at them. And sometimes they'll get hit. And they said, so what do you do? He said, we, we leave. Okay, so do you just move on to another place? Say, no, we wait until they calm down. And then what do you do? So we go back. What do you do? Because they're throwing rocks at you. So we share the gospel. And if somebody comes to Christ, we plant the church. And then we have them share the gospel. And they're just literally, we're eating breakfast. It's like, yeah, we just go back, share the gospel. What do you do? <laughs> we never go back. We never, we don't even think about it. It's closed. Right? They say they don't want us there. You know what I mean? How are we going to go there? So our idea of what an open door looks like, what their idea of what an open door looks like, you notice here it says open for us. No, he says open what? Open door for the word. Right? Open door for the word. Paul, in Philippians 1, 12 to 14, sitting in prison, says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. He's sitting in prison. He said, oh my gosh, I'm going out and I'm planting churches and I have all these plans to go to Rome and do all this stuff, but now I'm sitting in prison. My ministry is over. Instead, he says, because I'm sitting in prison, the gospel has been unleashed. Look what he says. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of god without fear so for him the open door was the imprisonment 
It opened doors that he could not open if he wasn't in prison. He wasn't saying open door, saying, everybody welcome me, the funds are there, we have the support, the church is behind me, and they're welcoming, giving me the visa. He says, no. He says, there's adversaries, even in sitting in prison. This was an open door. Again, in Galatians 4.13, but you know that it was because of the bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. Because he was ill. Oftentimes, when we are praying for open doors, it may just be our eyes that need to be open, that our hearts need to be open. We are in the midst of one of the greatest stirring up of souls that I've seen during my lifetime. People have been stirred up and fear for their life. You know, the biggest problem that we have in sharing the gospel, at least in Orange County, is that they're wealthy. And so their mortality is not real. Every once in a while they go to a funeral and then they think about, oh, what's the meaning of life? But outside of that, they're on their phones, they're on the internet, you know, and they have noise drowning out every silence that they have. But the pandemic has caused people to think about their mortality more than I've ever experienced. I've been, I was getting phone calls during the middle of the pandemic of people that fell out of their faith like 10, 15 years ago. And I was their last pastor, so when they got anxious, they called me. They said, hey, Pastor Peter, I'm just not in a good place. I haven't been going to church for 10 years. Can you pray for me? Because I need to get back. I haven't talked to this guy in 15 years. We have more non-Christians who've never been to church, just walking into church these days, than we've ever experienced. And we're not going to get them. They're living in anxiousness. This pandemic has created an environment where people are hungry to know there's got to be something more to this. So the doors have been open. Even though they shut us in, even though the stores have been closed, God has opened doors that we haven't seen open before. So I'm thankful that you guys are seeing that and giving efforts toward that. And that's why Paul says, Ephesians 5, 15, 16, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So when we pray for open doors, first see if your eyes need to be open. See what opportunities are already here. Not waiting for China to open, not waiting for the foreign countries, but what, what doors are open today? Who's sitting next to you? When you go to the coffee shop, is there a barista that you are running into constantly and you're having conversations and, and the only conversation you're having is about football or basketball? Maybe that conversation could be about Christ. Sitting on an airplane with a, with a perfect stranger for four, five, six, seven, eight hours, right? maybe you, you haven't been in the habit of talking to them, maybe, maybe that's an opportunity. Paul says, pray for open doors. And then second, he said, pray that when that door opens, pray that we would be bold in making the mystery of Christ clear. So you can't ask for open doors if you're not going to prepare to be able to share, right? Like when you're praying for open doors, it's like, wow, that door's open. Well, that door's huge. That's an awesome door that's open, right? I mean, sometimes we do that even of our faith. We celebrate access to God without ever going in. The whole purpose of the access to be open is so that we can come to the throne of grace with confidence. But if we're not careful, we can spend all our time celebrating the open door. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? That door is huge. I could have never opened that door. Jesus opened the door. Look at that door. It's open. Thank you, Lord, for open door. Right? And every Sunday you sing about the open door and how awesome this path is and Wow, that looks awesome, but you never go in. The purpose of the open door is to go in. So if you're going to pray for open door, you better be ready to take that door and get to where God is sending you. And Paul says, pray for me so that when that happens, that I may be bold to make the mystery of Christ clear. Now, why is the gospel called a mystery? Is it because he playing hide and seek right? he wants he wants us to he's like certain things are hidden certain things are not is that what he means by that you know it's interesting because uh i looked up 
you know, and they, in this scholastic society of how to write good mysteries or make good mystery movies. And universally, they said there's seven things that you need to make a good mystery. One is it requires a strong hook. So kind of read a, either you read a novel or you're watching a movie and it's a mystery. It usually people are getting tired of having fun, light turns on, boom, somebody dies on the ground. That's the hook, right? Who did it? And so the second thing they said it needs is a detective. And, and detective doesn't have to be formal. It could just be somebody who's taking charge and saying, well, we're going we're gonna to find out who did this, right? We're going to find the answer to that. That's the second. Third is a villain. If, if something happened, who did it, right? And so you're looking for that. And then fourthly, a flowing narrative, right? That everything that's happening in this mystery is connected. So something that you found in maybe chapter 1 is going to make sense when it gets to chapter 10. So there's a flowing narrative. And then it says there's trail of clues. Right? Every little thing that it doesn't make sense here, but later on these puzzles come together. And then there's also a red herring. They say, a red herring is, well, as you're going, it kind of throw you off path, thinking like, maybe he did it, and there's a, how can he have done it? He was with us, right? And there's constantly red herrings, and then finally, a satisfying ending, a conclusion, answer. Does that sound like anything to you? Have you been paying attention? What's the hook? Genesis. Genesis, when God said, if you eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die, and they eat it. And so death comes into mankind. And that curse begins to reign. That's the hook. So how do we, how do we solve this problem? If mankind is under this death, how are we going to solve this problem? And that's us. Right? We're drawn into this story. How are we going to solve this? And then the villain, the Antichrist, everything that is done to fix this problem, there's an antagonist attacking this through the whole process, right? the demonic world. The flowing narrative is the meta-narrative. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all connected. If you read right, the story of Jonah without understanding how it fits into the meta-narrative, you're not going to get the point. You're going to look at that story and it says, don't mess with God. Right? If you're with God, even, even the whale can't kill you. Right? Don't ever run from him. Like, so you're going to pull out things, and, and maybe some of them are true, some of them may not, but that's not the main point. Because it's a part, it's a chapter in the longer narrative. And the reason why Jonah is there is because Israel forgot their calling. That God called them to be a magnifier of God's glory instead they said, we don't want them to say, you, you don't realize that God wants all mankind to hear and to know who he is. So it was a rebuke to Israel. That whole book was the rebuke to Israel because in the meta-narrative, that's how it fits. Trail of clues. What does that look like? We have types, prophets, prophecies. The whole book of Leviticus is a clue. The whole book of, whole book of Numbers is a clue. In fact, some of the most um, satisfying study was in places that I had no clue when I first went in. Right? Every part of Leviticus makes the gospel so much more clear. Every part of Leviticus. Every part of Numbers makes the inheritance that God promises so much more clear. Because these are clues about the coming Christ, about the end, about how he's going to die. And there's clues all over the Bible. So as we are studying it, we're unraveling, right? We're, start, we're, we're trying to uncover what is the meaning of it. That's the study of the Bible. And then, finally, the satisfying ending, the conclusion, the answer is Christ on the cross. That's why the, the gospel is called the mystery. Now, why is the gospel presented in this way? For what purpose? To draw us in. So that when the conclusion comes, when Christ is revealed as the answer, that we don't just like, oh, okay, they died, he this, when then Jesus died. Because he's trying to draw us in. He's trying to draw us in to the gospel story. So that it's not just revelation of glory. It is a revealing of the answer that you and I are in.
how is this going to be fixed? If all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, how is this going to be fixed? So the study of the Bible is having a deeper understanding of this mystery. So if you study the Bible without committing and understanding the meta-narrative and why we're studying this, it just becomes knowledge. And knowledge, I don't know how to say it. Human knowledge outside of God sucks. Now, the reason why I say that, because it always leads to arrogance. It always leads to arrogance. Everything that you learn without being humbled by the narrative of the gospel is used as a resource to shine light on other people. It made them Pharisees. You know who knew the Bible better than anybody else? The scribes, the Pharisees. But they didn't understand the heart of God. So instead of using it to humble themselves and and wait for Christ, they use it as an avenue to condemn people. Everything that we do is connected. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, in whose case the God of the world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is a non-Christian is somebody that does not see the glory of this gospel. It still remains a mystery and they don't know what it is. So a Christian is somebody whose eyes have been opened and we have engaged and found the answer in Christ. So sharing of the gospel is basically sharing and making the mystery of Christ clear to those who do not see the glory so that they also may see the glory. That's why in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, right? And all of that. If we ended there, right, for training in righteousness, right? If we ended there, it's like, oh, this is the source of being righteous, right? And we need to know theology in order for us to be pure and correct, and all of that is true. But he said, so that your righteousness and studying and training and reproof and correction and discipleship in the word of God so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. If we don't get to verse 17 and we leave at verse 16, that's a Pharisee. That's a scribe. Because you understood the mind of God, you didn't understand the heart of God. The heart of God is adequate for what? For what? And what's the good work that Paul's talking about? To making the mystery of the cross clear. To join his mission. To follow him. You see how important this is? Right? We, we can study and memorize and, you know, read theological books and be more corrupted as a result. But when we understand the heart of God and we tap into what he wants us to pray for, his promises, you will see. You'll see prayers being answered. And you'll be walking with Christ. And the reason why in our generation where Christianity has just become a theory and it's like, oh, you, you do all of this because you learned it, but it doesn't, just doesn't seem real. Because we're not walking where he's walking. We're not going where he's going. We're admiring him from a distance. We're celebrating the open door but never going in. You're, you're more in love with the idea of being in love than really being in love. I want to finish my sermon I think it's going to take me about six, seven minutes. It may take longer. <laughs> Pastors always say that so you don't fall asleep, right? I am at, I am at the end, but I'm not sure how, the, how long this end is going to be, right? <laughs> it's a trick, right? So anytime a pastor says that, it just means, please pay attention. That's, the, that's what they're actually saying. Okay. Anyway. I want to read you a, a Paul's request for prayer that he writes in Corinth on his third missionary journey. As he ends in Corinth, he writes a a letter to the Romans, and he's asking for, he's ending the Roman letter with prayer. Say, I haven't gone there, but I want to come to you. But I want you to pay attention to what he's asking for. Romans 15, 30 to 33. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He's asking for prayer. He said, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Let me stop right there. You have to understand, by the time he's on his third missionary journey, remember, everywhere he goes, they already know him. 
right? Here's this guy who's shaken up the world, and they're ready to beat him already, even before he entered. And so when he's in Corinth, he's been beaten, put into prison. People are chasing after him. He's being chased out of synagogue. He's tired. So he comes into Corinth, and he's... Jesus asked to speak to him. He said, you continue to do the work. I have many of my followers here. So he's resting in Corinth. But during the rest, he's not giving up. He, he's planning to go to Judea and then to, to, to Judea from there to go to Rome. Now, you have to understand, Judea is the epicenter of persecution. So today, the number one, the, the hardest place to share the gospel in the world today is in North Korea. They're ranked number one by far. So Paul's prayer is basically asking, I'm, I'm headed to North Korea, right? I'm headed to North Korea. Please pray for my protection, but not only pray for my protection, that I may meet the saints, the underground Christians there, and I may be, bear a lot of fruit, right? Now, obviously, people are going to say, yeah, we'll pray for you, but, you know, what they're really thinking is, what are you doing, right? We have so much work to do. If you want to go to Rome, don't go to Judea, Right? I mean, you got so much work to do. You got all these other places. But if you go to Judea, they're going to bind you. They're going to kill you. And that's exactly what, what they prophesy. After he writes this letter, he begins his journey to Jerusalem. He stays in Miletus, and he asks the, the, the leaders of Ephesus to come, and he spends overnight, and they're begging him not to go because they're concerned. If you go there, they're going to kill you. He doesn't listen to them, gets on a boat, and he goes all the way to Tyre, Right? It, where it's, it's, it's near the area, and when he lands there, the, the prophet Agabus, he said, I got this prophecy from God. If you go to Jerusalem, Judea, they're going to bind you, and they're going to beat you. Don't go. You cannot go. They're begging him not to go. And then Paul responds from that, and he says, you're breaking my heart. Not only am I willing to be bound and beaten, I'm ready to die. They couldn't stop him. So he decides to go. He gets into Jerusalem, and he's at the temple, and he begins to preach. This is the epicenter, right? This is where Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. All the leaders who made the decision to crucify him, they're still there. And he's preaching the gospel, just like Agabus said. They get stirred up, and, and said they were so angry. They, as soon as they found out who he was and what he was preaching, they dragged him out of the temple, start beating him with full intention to kill him. But you know what happens? Because they were so angry and they were so stirred up and there were so many of them, it started to get the attention of the Roman cohort. So they come running in to stop this and they, they arrest him and they're going to put him in prison to stop this riot. And as Paul is going to prison, he says, hey, let me, let me explain what happened. Give me a minute to explain to these people why I'm here. So the Roman guard said, okay, I'll give you. I'll give you an opportunity. He turns around and he preaches the gospel. But they can't touch him because he's under Roman protection. So he preaches the gospel. They're like, oh, my God. They're pulling their hair, and they want to kill him, but the Roman cohort is protecting him. They said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to present you to the leaders of Israel because this is not enough. We're going to have to get to the bottom of this. He goes in front of the same people who crucified Jesus, Ananias, Caiaphas. And so they want to hear him. So what's this about? Why is this being stirred up? And guess what he does? He preaches the gospel. And they can't touch him. But by this time, they're so angry. Forty Jews make a vow. They said, when they transfer him from this place to the other place, we're going to take a vow for 40 days. We're not going to, 40 men, they said, we're not going to eat and drink until we kill this guy. Well, Paul's nephew somehow hears about this and goes and tells the Roman cohorts, and, and they say, this is going to happen. And so I want to read to you how crazy this is. So they found out about it, and so because there's Jews that are going to jump them, in Acts 23, 23 to 25, they say, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on, a, on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he's transported with 270 Roman soldiers so they can't touch him. 
I always wonder what happened to those 40 people. <laughs> it doesn't say. It doesn't tell us. My guess is, you know, they probably got hungry around 20th day, and then they saw the Roman cohort, and they're like, this is suicide. And I'm guessing after about, if they held on, one by one, they just started backsliding. You know what I mean? And they probably just went home and never mentioned it. It's like, well, what vow? I don't remember making no vow, right? But you made a vow, you're supposed to starve to death, right? Under the protection of the Romans, they take him to Felix, and Felix interviews him. Guess what he does? Open door, preaches the gospel. And Felix is like, what's, what's wrong with this guy? But, fact, I mean, he's a Roman citizen, and he's very well connected. So he keeps him in prison for two years, hoping that he'll get some kind of a kickback. And look what it says. Acts 24, 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Two years. Two years he's sitting under house arrest, but it's not being treated like a prisoner. He said, let his friends come and go, right? And he is preaching the gospel under the full protection of the power of the Romans. After two years, the guy, man, this guy is stingy, right? He's not giving us any money, so they get passed on to Festus. Festus hears him, preaches the gospel to him, and then Festus says, you know, this is not enough. Like, we're going to end this. And he sends him over to King Agrippa. And in front of King Agrippa, he preaches the gospel. And King Agrippa says, you're crazy. Your tremendous learning has made you crazy. You think now, this short period of time, that you're going to get me to follow Jesus? He says, not only you, but all of everybody, he says. Right? <laughs> the boldness of this guy. Right? Not only you, but everybody. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. But he said, I'm a Roman citizen. I, I, by law, you're required to send me to Caesar. <laughs> he doesn't want to get out of jail. So he said, I don't see anything wrong, but because you're a Roman citizen, now law requires me to send you. So they, King Felix puts him on a boat, begins to sail away to Rome. But on this path, they get into all kinds of trouble. So they thought they're going to die. And initially, it's like, who's this prisoner telling us, us to do? But they got so desperate, they said, okay, what is your God telling us? And by the Holy Spirit prophecy, he ends up saving them. And then they end up getting shipwrecked in Malta. But by that time, Paul is he's not like in any other prisoner. He's the guy who saved everybody. There's like over 200 people on this boat. They get into Malta, and while they're shipwrecked, they're in front of a fire, and a viper comes and bites him. So the locals said, oh, this guy, you know, he, he survived the shipwreck, but he couldn't survive. You know, so he must have done something wrong. So they're waiting for him to die, and he doesn't die. So instead of saying he must have been a great sinner, they said He's, he must be a god. What human being can survive that? So he becomes a mini celebrity on his way. So okay, I'm at the tail end now. I'm serious. He gets... So by the time he gets to Rome, he saved everybody on the ship. He became he becomes this mini celebrity, and the word has already spread by the time they get to Rome. And when they get to Rome, it says this in Acts 28 to 20 to 25. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. He's not looking for them because he's already a mini celebrity. He shows up, they're coming to him. In large numbers. And when he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets and, and morning until evening, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. All under the protection of the Romans. And the ones who did not believe couldn't touch him. And this is how Acts ends. Acts 28, 30 to 31. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. He tapped into the heart of God. He asked for open doors like, oh, okay. Bam! He asked for protection, Romans. He asked for safety, going to Rome. Safety and unhindering so that he can refresh them. 
under the protection of the Romans. What kind of strategy, right? What kind of strategy would have created this? What, what kind of efforts of man could have done this? Only our sovereign God who answers prayer. So when he says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done. You could take that to the bank. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, you are worthy to be worshipped. Lord, you are doing so many things, even now, that we can't begin to imagine. Help us, Lord God, to open our eyes, to see the magnitude of who you are, that we would not be entangled with trivial things in our lives, but that we would also pick up our cross and follow him to the world. Lord, there are so many in our generation who are lost. They're seeking. They're wanting answers. Lord, I pray that you would build up this church, that they would shine so bright where you have planted them, that your promises would not simply be a theory, but the power in which you will empower them to go. So as they desire to engage the lost, we know, Father God, that you will answer our prayers. I pray that the doors may be open to this church, that the people who are seeking that you would bring here, that the word of God, the mystery of the gospel will be made clear through this pulpit and through the lives of the people. May your name and your name alone be magnified here. In Jesus' name we pray. It's all nice.